Now it's True Wealth presented by Little John Financial Services. Here is David Littlejohn with True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. All right. Hey, we're back in studio. Welcome to the best Tuesday you've had all week. I am stoked to be here. This is Dave Littlejohn. Joining me is Matt Dixon. All right. It's time for your favorite. It's the True Wealth Show. And I really am. I'm stoked to be back. Do you, you know, feel good? Are you like just roaring and ready to go? I do. Honestly, I feel good. And, um, because I got a few calories before the show, too, as I perked up. I'm like, woo, let's do this. There we go. Uh, you know, I uh, try all kinds of weird things. Uh, and so right now, it's this combination of intermittent fasting and really low carbs. Now, when you're a sugar addict, which I am. Yeah, you right? are. You you hit that little bucket of candies on the front desk too I'm often. Like, like, oh, my gosh. Uh, so I have totally got a sweet tooth. So this is really... Uh, a, a mental challenge. I was doing pretty well, and then w- during the Christmas season, I was like, you know what, punt. This is just too hard. I want chocolate. It's here, and so I, you know, just did kind of let things slide. And now getting back on the wagon is less fun. Man, I'm genuinely addicted to sugar. True story. Gummy worms or gummy bears? Uh, probably gummy. Bears. Oh, that's the wrong answer. Well, you failed I know. that one. So actually, they're not the same, right? You they no. Like, they're the not. gummy worms are not as chewy. Yeah, it's true. And so I actually like that better, but I can portion gummy bears better. Oh, that's yeah, <laughs> that's true. So I'm like, oh, well, you know. Uh, anyway, uh, we did not come today, of course, to talk about Dave's sugar addiction or how I'm going to get over it. Uh, but, uh, you know, rest assured, you'll probably hear about it on the show from time to time because it's what we do. The struggle is real. All right. Meanwhile, Matt, I think your addiction is just to, to eating. Food in general. Yes. Today it was leftovers and I just decided to go for it. So I had like meatloaf, mashed potatoes, chicken fried steak. Um, there was like some uh, Oh, I do cheesy... have to share... Uh, it was not. A, I'm not going to say where because I don't want to ruin their reputation. But it was a marginal dining experience. But I <laughs> did order something that uh, really I'm glad it exists. It's sort of a last hurrah of carbs. But I had a hamburger that was sandwiched between two grilled cheese sandwiches. What? I uh, yeah. It was a. Gr- it was called a heart attack burger, <laughs> and it was oh man two grilled cheeses with the burger patty and all the fixings in between. And I'm not going to lie. It sounds good. It was good. It was oh. good. I had him cut it in half, and I ate half, and now the other half is leftovers saying, like, well, there's carbs in that, you know? And I'm like, well, I can get the bread away and, you know, not take all the carbs. Or I could eat four pounds of celery with it, and, you know, I could, like, my net carbs will drop. Uh, we're losing so many listeners when you start talking about vegetables. Go back to the meat and Go cheese. Go back to the meat yeah. and cheese. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not, well, today, speaking of, right, so there's just like the diet we're going we're gonna to use today to talk a little bit about. I don't know if you've noticed or not, any uh, this, but the, the market's been a little volatile. Yeah. <laughs> well, we need a sound effect button. Like, ugh. No, I think you did great. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's all over the board. Yesterday was crazy town. Right? Oh, yeah. So we saw like a 4% intraday swing. So the market falls by almost 4%. And when I say market, I'm thinking of the major indexes. So mm-hmm. you've got the the Dow Jones Industrial Average, so 30 stocks there. The S&P 500, which is actually like 505 stocks. you got the NASDAQ, which is somewhere around 100 stocks. 
And then uh, we can talk about the Russell 2000. That was in there, too. That's uh, 2,000 small and medium-sized companies. But all of those indexes had these huge drawdowns in the middle of the day. And then they kind of roared back in the last hour to finish slightly positive, which is a big shocker, right? Because we were like, oh, "Oh, my gosh. We just had intraday, right, during the trading, a full-blown correction now. So from the high... the, the peaks that happened in late December, early January, we've seen more than 10% pullback. NASDAQ was like 12%, 13%. So and the VIX was off the charts. Right. I the mean, VIX, that's... the volatility index, spiked way high. And then the question was, what next? Because today, the markets, they, they dropped, then they climbed back up toward the end of the day again, and then right at the end, they dropped again. Now, not anywhere like they, they were way lower yesterday than today, but lots of volatility. Right, big ups, big downs. So, what the heck's going on? Well, I'll tell you one thing: it doesn't feel good. <laughs> How about that? Let's start there. It doesn't feel good. Yep it's it's definitely testing. If you've been listening to the show recently, you know we talked but, recently on the show last week, I believe, about risk. Mm-hmm. Right, we talked about this is a really good chance if you're getting sick to your stomach then it's it's time to evaluate what kind of uh, investment risk are you really willing to take. But we do have a big decision coming tomorrow. Well, that, that's, I think, what's driving. So yeah. we're not, we're not, this isn't the Talk About Risk Again show today, just no. so you know. But, yeah, what's coming up tomorrow? The Fed's going to release a statement, and it could really determine... I think, you know, a little bit of direction for a while on which way the market goes. Because yeah. if the Fed comes out and says, you know, theoretically, uh, maybe we don't do four interest rate hikes. Maybe we only do three. Well, they said three. The market said four. Oh, it was the right? market the Fed that says said three. Four. Okay. The markets are predicting four. The Fed has sort of hinted that, that what the most, I think it was Lael Brainerd, who was like one of the most uh, dovish Fed members. Mm-hmm. She had her own talk where she was giving an interview and said, look, the, the data's clear. We have lots of inflation problems. You, Everybody listening to the show, we all get it, right? I mean, there's mm-hmm. inflation. You, you look around and it's like, whoo, things got expensive in a hurry. So we're we're there and, and we're all joking going like, hey, what, what took all the economists so long to figure this out? Like, why is the Fed so far behind the power curve? We've all seen this inflation for months. What are we talking about? Like, oh, we think it's present. Maybe they figured they could just ignore the problem long enough. And well, then <laughs> it's, it started with the term transitory, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's not going to stick around. And what it was believed was... Now, I'm going to tie a bunch of things together here. Okay. okay. What, what I think started as, we think supply chain disruptions are temporary because of COVID. Okay? Mm-hmm. Now... This is a combination of what I'm going to call facts, opinions, and tinfoil hat. Okay. Wow. There's a lot wrapped into one. Yep. So, you know, facts and opinions, foil hat. So, first, you, you had the idea that tr- inflation was going to be transitory, that, that government officials are saying, well, we're going to get through this pandemic, and when we do, we think things will normalize. But what we're starting to see, and now some of the opinion here, is that we're not normalizing back to what it was before. Mm-hmm. Okay, People have changed the way they work. Lots more people working from home permanently. Some people left the workforce potentially permanently, or they've, they've changed what they're going to do. They're not going to go back to the old jobs. 
some jobs don't exist anymore. Like a lot of food service jobs have just been decimated. And so the, the, the available workforce in those areas of the economy just aren't there. And we're, we're seeing that pain and we're seeing the, you know, for higher signs everywhere. So there could be some cultural shifts that are going to permanently alter or at least significantly alter for an extended amount of time. Permanent might be the wrong phrase, right? But there, it's not going to be what it used to be. So that's less transitory. Okay. And then it became, well, and this is sort of the foil hat part of it. Like the foil hat part of it is, you know, did we really think it was going to be temporary in the first place? Mm. Right. Um, because some people have been arguing for a long time, well, we need a higher minimum wage. When it starts to produce an outcome where we put in place government programs that supplement incomes, make employers have to be competitive so they pay more, right? Mm-hmm. So the, you maybe didn't require a minimum wage, but the market sort of demanded it to get workers, right? So wages have started to rise. Yeah. Okay. So maybe mission accomplished, right? That's kind of foil hatty, right? And then you look at some of the other issues at play here. Uh, this is the, right, your, you know, the shin bones connected to the knee bone, to the thigh bone, to Russia is connected to Ukraine, to connected to the U.S., connected to supply chain in China. Mm-hmm. Okay? So f- stay with me here because if you think about this, this is the foil hat part, but it kind of makes sense. Here's the weird strategy. So the Biden administration isn't going to resist having Russia invade Ukraine. Ukraine was trying to talk to NATO about maybe joining NATO. Russia doesn't want that. United States is trying to play both sides against the middle here and and just sort of pretend that we're neutral, even though we're not necessarily neutral. And so Russia is poised to go into Ukraine. United States says, oh, well, you know, 8,500 troops. That's a real troop response. But to do what? Yeah, exactly. To do what? So effectively, we expect, like, I'm not going to be surprised at all. And I don't think the market's concerned about phase one which is I don't think the stock market cares as much that Russia is invading Ukraine because that's not a a material disruption to supply chain. There's not a ton of manufacturing inbound from Russia and the Ukraine. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying there's none, but I'm saying there's not a ton. So it's not a direct impact on our economy. But the second order effect is concerning, which is if recognizing a point of sort of political weakness where – the the majority party, the Democrat Party, is sort of internally fractured. Mm-hmm. Republican Party's throwing rocks. Everybody's getting ready for elections again and trying to, you know, posture for it. Does China see this as an opportunity to strong arm Taiwan into coming back underneath Chinese mainland governance? And Taiwan does manufacture a lot of chips. Taiwan is the the global leader, bar none, in supplying like the chips for all of the computers and systems that we have this chip shortage for. Cars, computers. <laughs> yeah. Like all over the Electronics. Yeah. We have this huge backlog causing massive vehicle inflation. We can't get chips. So if China says we see an opportunity and we are willing to take the position, the hardline position that <clears throat> we want to control this region, and China has 
they've they've hinted or flirted flirted these concepts. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, like, and this so isn't there's anything. You know, new. We don't need to go deeper into that, but this isn't this isn't crazy foil hat entirely. It's foil hatish. Like, well, we're trying to predict the future and we don't know. But if you look at all the chips on the table, you go, that could really happen, and that could be a material disruption. Sure. And if that material disruption occurs, the markets really have some things to digest because mm-hmm. we might be moving into economic strength, but the Fed has to fight inflation. Inflation's exacerbated by global politics and the supply chain disruption, and it forces rates higher, and then the market says, yikes, we, we really don't. Even though the economy is theoretically getting stronger, the consumer can't keep up because we're at full employment, we're losing the ability, you know, if, if there's not a growing workforce, and there may not be with baby boomers retiring and so forth, mm-hmm. do we have the ability for our economy to stomach this, or do prices end up correcting because the cost of capital, access to money is dropping? Wow, that's a lot for right? the very first segment of the show today. Well, because but we don't, we're, we're not even here to talk about the markets today. Yeah. We're talk about, now that we've laid the groundwork for, what is what if the market could go down from here, right? What if it could go up, but what if it could go down? Mm-hmm. The real key question is, how are we as investors to play this game? This is a good show today. It is, but we have to take our first obscene profit break okay. from it. So hang on, if you want to hear more and... Uh, learn a little bit about how you can try to how, to how to position yourself as an investor. We're going to cover that and more when we come back. Stick around. This is Dave Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. You got True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. Hey gang, welcome back to the True Wealth Radio Show. Dave Littlejohn in studio with Matt Dixon. All right, Matt, how okay. do they get caught up on this show? They need to go check out the podcast, littlejohnfs.com. Right? FS is in financial services. Exactly. So check it out. You get caught up. The first segment, the markets have been up, down, and all around. We talk a little bit about why. We talk about how the markets maybe. Uh, they could go up, they could go down. The Federal Reserve's going to chat tomorrow about it. Mm-hmm. And they may be backed into a corner, right? A little uh, bit, Federal yeah. Reserve, they might have to raise rates. The market's figuring out how much, when, why, or how. When would that first rate hike hit? Isn't it March? They were suggesting March. That's okay. been the guidance. My sense is that the Fed, the, what the market's trying to handicap is whether the Fed's got it right. Hmm. Okay? Not whether or not they're going to raise rates. The rates are getting raised, but how many times is the Fed uh, behind the power curve and going to be forced to play catch up? Well, they have to th- raise rates more than anticipated. Do you think they'll just come out and say like a quantitative number? We're going to give you three, or are they going to be more ambiguous than that? Well, they have. I think that they will be as direct as they can be while leaving their options open. Okay. I think they'll say something close to "We expect three rate hikes." But we remain data dependent. Oh, okay. Right. So, yeah. you know, while, it, and then so there'll be some language to suggest that, and the people will parse the language. Well, how many angels can dance on the head of that pin? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, it, it, how many Scooby snacks does it take? So, you know. Okay. Here's the real question not the how did we get here, but what do we do? Okay. In terms of how do we invest in order to prepare 
for so, rate hikes? Is that where we're going with this? A little bit. So so before the show, Matt and I get together and we say, how are we gonna how are we gonna frame up the show today? And here's the thing that I didn't want to turn this into a you know, congratulations if you're nervous, maybe your risk tolerance is wrong. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and and congratulations if you're not nervous, then maybe your patience level was adequate. You know, hey, I understand risk and it's the markets go up, the markets go down. I'm not gonna lose sleep over this thing. Good. Right? That's really where you want to be as a long term investor. And largely and historically that has played out well. But there's more than one way to approach investing. Mm-hmm. And that's what we want to talk about a little bit today. And so I see this as an opportunity to discuss some of the different money management or investment management philosophies, if you will, like the high level. What are we doing? And some of these may sound like things that you are doing. Some of these may sound like things you're interested in doing. And some of these may sound like things that are a terrible idea. Why would anybody do that at all? Mm. The point is not which one is right or wrong, but some discovery about how might one look at this. Okay, so I want to give talk me an about, example of one to just start out with. Well, is there one that is here's here's of, what's going on in my head, man. Okay, I'm thinking we should talk about the three big picture ways that people invest, and mm-hmm. then how you can break it down and behave in those categories. Okay, can I take a stab at? Yeah, hit them? me. Okay, I'm thinking more of like a strategic style where you buy, hold, and you just say, I'm in, and I'm along for the ride. Okay. Would you say that that's a fair yeah, look I mean, at one of those of a, type a of styles? Yeah, buy and hold, long-term investment, mm-hmm. uh, and, and strategic in this case means a little bit more than what I think you're applying. Okay. But Elaborate you're, But for you're me. on the right path. Yeah. So when I think about how investors behave, I think there's these three big picture categories. And we could try to nuance this more, but let's let's just stick with me for a sec. There's strategic investors, tactical investors, and dynamic investors. Mm. Okay. Strategic, which just like the word implies, what's the strategy? Okay. Mm-hmm. But a strategy is typically more passive and long term in nature as the financial industry thinks of it. Okay. Okay. So, because all of these, well, I'm using a strategic strategy and I'm using a tactical strategy or a dynamic strategy. See, you see what I mean? There's like some the overlap. Words, yeah. Well, the words are word salad. That's kind of the problem. Word salad. So, if we think about a strategic investor's style, would be to determine what the mix of investments is going to be and largely hold those for a long time. Mm-hmm. So if you're younger, it may be 100% stock market investments, no bond market, no fixed income, right? Maybe you want to be a 60-40 investor, 60% stocks, 40% fixed income. And I'm using the term fixed income because it's not just bonds. There could be other things that work like fixed income. But your strategy is to settle in on a mix of investments that reflects how much risk you're willing to take or comfortable taking. I mean, I think a target date fund might be a good example of that. It is, but target dates are, well, they're sort of passively tactic, tactical as well. Mm-hmm. Okay? So why don't we use this to explain tactical next, and then you'll, the difference will make sense. Strategic is set your allocations to different investment types mm-hmm. and then largely leave them there. 
So, hey, if, if I see outperformance in one category of my investing, I should sell the winners, rebalance back to my original strategic weightings. Mm-hmm. And so there's gonna be, I'm going to sell my winners and buy losers in my portfolio to rebalance. Okay? Yeah. And that's a strategic long-term uh, deal. And, and you either use a time frame when you rebalance or you use a trigger point where you say, if, if my portfolio is more than this percentage out of whack, that's the trigger where I will sell it back to my original strategy. And that's how you basically sell high and buy low. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a really consistent strategy that you, you stay on board with. And so we call that strategic. Right. It's more like buy and hold categorical rebalancing. I can get on board with that. Okay. Tactical is similar to strategic, except that you are revisiting how you're weighting to different types of investment classes. And you're changing the weightings depending on the changing economic environment. And you're trying to predict how things will change. So you are making adjustments to those strategies using a tactical approach, right? And, and your reasoning can be whatever you want. But, but that's the broad stroke naming of it is, well, a tactical manager largely stays invested all the time, but is repositioning how much you're leaning into one area of the market versus another. Do you want to give the listeners an example of how that might look like? Well, let's say, for example, that right now in a rising rate environment, you would tactically shift away from long-term bonds that could lose value in a rising rate environment, Mm -hmm. and you may bias to financial companies where banks you would expect to be more profitable as rates rise and their margins increase. There we go. That's a good example. So your tactics would be to bias to financial the financial sector and to reduce exposure to long term fixed income holdings. Uh-huh. Okay. So you're tactically making an adjustment to your strategy. You're still largely completely invested, but you're kind of moving around in there. And then there's a third one. And what you're going to discover is there's all this is a spectrum. It's not like, well, this is the one and this and is the no next. There's no hard definitive lines. Right. Yeah. There's this spectrum of behaviors. The last one is what we'll call dynamic. Okay. And it's think of this more like market timing. You are moving into or out of areas of the market. It's not just the sizing of the positions. Um, and it's not just owning a block of positions, right? Strategic, here's my positions. I keep rebalancing back to that that original strategy. Tactical is shifting the, the weightings around to try to take advantage of the changes in the marketplace. Dynamic, moving in and out of things. That, a little. Okay. Yeah. So it's like taking tactical and ramping it up. Like I, you know, I'm in the market. I'm out of the market. I'm I'm trying to make timing decisions to optimize. That gets tricky too. Well, there's lots of data. There's there's a lot of data that indicates that timing the market's effectively impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, what I would suggest is it depends on how you define timing. The temptation is that people think, well, I can time the top of the bottom and the, the top of the market and the bottom. Okay, and I think that is really, really, really statistically hard to mm-hmm. accomplish. Like picking the top and the bottom, come on. Yeah. So uh, we talk in our office about how we will occasionally make tactical decisions, mostly, where, but sometimes a little bit more dynamic. Like we will raise or lower our cash position. We may want less risk exposure altogether. But 
we're not thinking we're going to get the top and the bottom of the market right. We're just mm -hmm. hoping to get the big picture trends more right than wrong. That's a good way to describe it. Okay, so so the tactics are sort of changing position sizing based on what we perceive to be opportunities or threats in the market. Here's the the the. There's lots of challenges that come within this, and one of the biggies is in the data of is it possible or not. Oftentimes, here's what I would argue: the larger your portfolio gets, the harder it is to do. Mm. Right. If you're trying to move around billions of dollars, right? Say, okay, I've got a 10, 15, 20 billion dollar investment firm and we want to make a shift in what we own. You're not fooling anybody. That's a huge block of money. They're going to see it move. Mm -hmm. They're going to see that behavior occur because you're moving billions of dollars. Even though the market has trillions of dollars worth of market capitalization, it doesn't necessarily trade in a trillion dollars of volume every day. That's true. So when you move billions at a time, they'll see you do it. Mm -hmm. right? But here's the crazy thing. If you move millions of dollars around, you can hide a little bit, meaning you can sort of be absorbed in the regular trading of the institutional marketplace. Moving right. $10 million around in uh, Microsoft or Amazon stock in a day, not that unusual. There are lots of ways that you can sort of accommodate moving a block that size. It's just harder when you go from 10 million to a billion, right? You know, mm -hmm. a thousand times more. You're you're not off the radar. So, the problem when you use some of these statistics is, well, at what scale? There are statistically most people lose when they day trade, but there are some people that day trade that win. Mm-hmm. Right. I have this. This is going to blow people away on the radio. I'm not going to say who it was, but I will tell you that I have personally witnessed somebody day trade and make a hundred thousand dollars in under an hour. Yeah, I watched over their shoulder as they did it. That's wild. It was wild. It was like watching much someone money, play though, a video game. How much money did they have in though in order to make that hundred thousand? Um, I think they had like probably two and a half million in the account. Okay. Man. But for one day yeah. to watch that occur. And there were times where they were leveraged up scary. Like three times, four times? Well, leverage? imagine owning a futures contract where every twenty five cent move is a forty dollar move in the contract. Oh. And okay. you see the price change ten dollars, so you've moved it, you know, four hundred dollars in five, you know, thirty seconds, and then you own twenty contracts. Jeez. Right? And so you watch it flip in and out, and you're like, oh my gosh, this is moving thousands of dollars per second. Uh, and, you know, they're just trimming here and buying there, and yep, back, forth, back, forth. I mean, it was scalping. It was crazy. I bet the wheels were just turning in your brain. Oh, like, it was fascinating, oh. and it was, an, it was a really amazing learning experience to see it. But I will tell you that danger, Will Robinson. You know, don't try to go reproduce that. This is uh, the the person I'm thinking of was has decades more experience than me, uh, including having worked directly on the trading floor and had uh, the kind of stuff that is just crazy. Experience. And they and they would also be the first to say they've had days where they couldn't catch a break. And so it's mm -hmm. not like it was all wins. That just happened to be a day that was like, oh my gosh, mm -hmm. right. Uh, to my knowledge, they're not doing it anymore because 
a lot of the things that they were able to exploit back in the day, I believe, have changed in the plumbing of the markets. Just because computers can buy and trade so quickly that they can computers gobble up the Computers can buy and trade so quickly. Yeah. And also uh, the, the high-frequency trade movement and then the zero latency movement, mm-hmm. which we're not going to go into on this program today, but zero latency has to do with how quick, how close you are to the exchange and how much you can front run trades that are inbound moving across the country. Right? We're going to leave it there yeah, because it, we're it starting exotic, to get into right? the weeds. We are. So anyway, we've now talked about the three big picture kinds of investing from a like the, the, the macro strategy level, so strategic, tactical, and dynamic. The question is, how can we apply that? We're going to talk about it right after these messages. Stick around. This is Dave Littlejohn and Matt Dixon. You got True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. Hey, gang, welcome back to the True Wealth Show. Uh, Dave Littlejohn in studio with Matt Dixon. All right, Matt. Yes. Three types of investing that we covered. In the last segment. We talked about strategic, we talked about tactical, and dynamic. Right. Now, what goes in those? A lot of stuff. A lot of stuff. You know, it's really interesting. So the most common thing that's talked about on the radio, Mm -hmm. probably mutual funds. Right? Really? Two primary kinds of mutual funds. Well, I mean, we talk about lots of stuff, but for most investors, what are, what are, what's the most common investment out there? I mean, it probably retail? is mutual funds. I, just, I think it's still, because if it you want a 401k sleepy. or something like that, yeah, that's what you got. There's just, ah, personally, I'm just like, ah, it's so boring. Well, Let's it's- talk about stocks. It's, yeah, it's less sexy. Mm-hmm. It's true, but it's, I think it's because- Here's what happens because Dave Ramsey. That that's no, all he says. No. Mutual funds, mutual funds, mutual Here's funds. Here's the thing. That's how investing works, mm-hmm. right? You want to have, if you're going to be a long-term investor, having uh, mutual funds have historically done better than individual investors, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's that's real common because they follow rules. Yeah, right? they're more disciplined. They're, you know, investors are their own worst enemy, and lots of research shows that. You make bad decisions when you make emotional decisions. So pros tend to do a better job of getting the emotions out of the picture. Hmm. Okay, so mutual funds. I'm not here to to bash mutual funds at all. Oh no, but they're uh, just they're yeah. I mean, boring. Our, our office, we still use mutual funds. Oh, a we lot. Do. Yeah. Sometimes what we do though is we kind of create our own version of a mutual fund because yes. ultimately mutual funds still buy investments, right? Oh yeah. You're just so the, a professional group is doing the management, and so the argument has historically been, well, you can't beat them, so just join them, right? They've got better tools and access and this, that, and the other. And I would say mm. the Internet's changed that game. Oh, yeah. Right? So I don't think it's about just having access or tools. There are some areas where that's true. I think abroad, when you've got weird accounting systems or you don't have the same access to information, uh, having boots on the ground can be a better deal than trying to use Google to get information. You know, I don't know how to invest in emerging market, you know, not off index investments in China. Right? Don't we don't do have that. the time. We can't exactly. spend the man hours to research that, but a mutual fund. Yeah, you know. so that can be a really good strategic alignment for us. Sure. Well, the see there's another use of strategic in the in the sense the different sense than what we talked about earlier. Gold star, David. Right. 
it's just, you know, there's some words in our industry that strategic is a word that has too many meanings, you know, lots of homonyms, and then the same with risk. You know, risk has all these different meanings. I'm like, oh, geez, of course we would do that. So it's just so we can charge more. That's how the financial industry works. Mm -hmm. So if you think about a mutual fund or a an exchange-traded fund is another mm -hmm. similar version. You know, exchange-traded fund is similar to a mutual fund that it's buying a basket of investments. It's different than a mutual fund that it trades on the exchange rather than being redeemed or purchased through the fund company. Okay? So you can you can you can take an exchange traded fund and trade it on say a New York Stock Exchange or the Nasdaq or over an electronic bulletin board. You can you can do uh, you can just buy the shares of some that somebody else owns and directly. Mm -hmm. Right? You don't have to go through the company which makes the expense ratio of an exchange-traded fund an interesting anomaly. Yes. Because there's an expense to create the unit, but then they trade like stocks afterwards. So I always kind of wonder, how should we report the expense ratio of an exchange-traded fund? Is it zero, like a stock, or is it the amount that it is like a mutual fund when it is first created? Do you ever get a wild hair where you're like, I really want to make an exchange-traded fund? Oh, absolutely. Wouldn't that just be a hoot? Yeah. Well, I've thought about whether or not to create our own mutual fund because the industry makes it really uh, expensive to serve clients. So we mm -hmm. only have the bandwidth for so many clients, which means that we have criteria f in order to work with our firm, right? So it's 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 not that we – part of the reason we do this radio show because I, mean, I want everybody to have access to good information mm -hmm. so that you can make better investment decisions. Smart investors benefit everybody because if you're better with your money, we're culturally stronger. Facts. Right? Like like we're we're better if you get better with money and the people that you're around and you teach them to be better with money. But like, what you're saying is we just don't have the time to serve everyone. Right. Like yeah. I can only have so many meetings in a week. You can only meet with so many people. Mm -hmm. Like you just run out of bandwidth. So th there's mechanical constraints to how, how do many we clone people. ourselves. Yeah, they're working on it. It's okay. uh, I've seen movies, they don't end well. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh anyway, the mutual fund idea is interesting because it would enable us to at least help a lot of people that are getting started. Mhm. Mm to access some of the things that we're doing, even if they're not the same type of client. You know, they could have the investment capital that we work on, even if they can't be a full-blown planning client right. with us. It'd be interesting to see how many people would be, you know, interested in that. I don't know. I don't know. And who knows? Down the road, yeah. we'll see, right? Because uh, it's because it's an interesting idea. And in the exchange-traded fund world, similarly interesting. Mm -hmm. But... The, the point of talking about funds is it is a good way to invest. It's a When you talk about strategic or tactical investing, mutual funds are very effective at this. The reason being is they're largely invested all the time, right? Their prospectus of a mutual fund sort of says how they're going to behave, so they're predictable for you as a, as a tool to build with mm -hmm. in your investment strategy. And because... Both strategic and tactical investing is usually pretty much invested, right? Mutual funds aren't trading instruments. There's there's penalties if you try to buy and sell them too frequently. You can get yourself in trouble with the fund company. They could kick you out 
and not allow you to buy the funds from them if you keep moving in and out. Just because of the cost to redeem the shares but and to sell the share. It and, wreaks havoc on yeah. the, the portfolio manager. Mm-hmm. You know, imagine if you're trying to manage a block of money and you got a bunch of people coming and going all the time and you're trying to take a long-term position because you believe it's profitable. And you but have people, to keep liquidating yeah, stuff in order to... Yeah, coming and going and they're forced you to change your strategy all right. the time. So... They don't like it, and they disincentivize it by saying, if you keep doing this, we're going to fire you as a customer, Hmm. right? So that's part of it, is they're not intended as trading instruments. But because they're predictable, that makes them useful. So you can build a strategy, and the question is, which funds should you use? The good ones. Right. How do you know? Well... First, you probably want to take a look at how long has the fund manager been in place. I mean, I think that'd be a good place to start, right? Okay, so yeah, do, so fund manager, what what is that? Why would why do you start there? Well, I start there because if someone you know just resigned and someone new comes in, they might change the structure of the fund itself. Okay, so it might take you know a slightly different objective, or you know something along those lines, yeah. and. So we're buying the experience a little bit. Yeah. Okay. And I don't think that's wrong. Even though no. everywhere we see disclosure that says, hey, past performance is no guarantee of future right. results. But uh, if no performance is no guarantee of future results either. <laughs> so brand new manager, who knows what you're getting, right? Yeah. And Unproven. I'd, I'd look at the fee structure too. Fee I structure. Mean, okay. So what, what about the fee structure? I mean... If I... Well, two parts. Fee structure and then also performance. So if... One fund, for example, is giving me 12%, and it has super high fees, but I can go over here and get a fund that has been also averaging 12%, and their fee is you know, a third of the cost. Why am I going to pay more? Well, now, here's the question I'm going to ask. Okay. There's a, I think a few of our listeners should be thinking this too, though, is if I get 12% either way, mm-hmm. what do I care what the fee is? Oh, I guess that's true. Right? Yeah. So I think that now fees matter mm-hmm. because if everything else is created equal, a lower fee tends to mean that the performance advantage is passed on to you, right? You keep more. If, if everything well, else yeah. is the same, there lower fees means more money stays in your pocket. Yes. But if it's just the results, the, the funny thing about mutual funds is people will get hung up on fees. And I'll, I'll tell you where, why I'm, I'm talking about this is there's... There's funds that are no load funds, mm-hmm. and then there's funds that are like a re, they're, they're funds that have commissions associated with them. If you were sold the fund, then somebody got paid for selling it to you. Mm-hmm. And so those no the the loaded funds have higher expense ratios. But if you could find a loaded fund that had superior consistent performance, who cares what the fee is? Because that's true. The the return is reported after expenses. That's true. Right? So that's the thing. Long-term, studies have shown that higher fees tends to mean lower performance because the fees do matter. Right. But if you could somehow find an example where the performance was higher, then the fee doesn't matter. Hmm. It it, it matters if it affects performance. There's another part then, I guess, how long are you going to have that mutual fund for? Well, that's that's a really good one to consider because mutual funds, the longer you own them, especially like if you buy a fund with an upfront 
cost, mm-hmm. they tend to have lower operating costs. So the longer that you own it, the cheaper it is to hold it long term, if you will. It's like you pay a little more up front, but you mm-hmm. get better gas mileage. Right. So you make up for it in fuel savings over time. Mm-hmm. Kind of like how mutual funds could work. Okay. So anyway, uh, there's a few other key elements to mutual funds that I think are important that investors maybe look at. Like staying within the same class of funds? I think classification like, like let's talk like, about let's talk about apples and apples like mm-hmm. apples to apples comparisons apples to oranges how to recognize the difference after the last of oh you're break. taking us to a break already it does. have to do it okay you know, we're gonna run it out of daylight right. here so we'll take our final break stick around and we're gonna cover again a little bit more on how to squeeze the juice out of your whatever apples? it's a mutual fund Lemons? conversation this is dave little john okay and matt dixon you got true wealth on news radio 1240 kqen Hey, welcome back to the True Well Show. Reminder, if you're just joining us, it's Dave and Matt, and we've got a podcast where you can get caught up at littlejohnfs.com. Check out under the Educate tab. It'll post tomorrow. Educate yourself. <laughs> so, Matt, uh, we got just a few minutes left. We were talking about uh, investing types. You know, now that now that everybody's had their their risk appetite checked. We're talking about what kind of investor are you? Are you strategic, meaning more buy and hold long term? Are you tactical, meaning you're making adjustments to your holdings based on changing conditions? Mm-hmm. Or are you dynamic, meaning you're you're literally moving in and out of different segments of the market, sometimes invested, sometimes not invested? We don't even have time today to talk about our style, do we? Well, you know what? Our style is, uh, very simply put, it is primarily tactical mm-hmm. with strategic circuit breakers. Or, I'm Ooh. sorry, I'll call them dynamic circuit breakers. So basically, if we have certain signals that if we see things break in the market, mm-hmm. we will raise, we'll, we'll reduce our exposure to certain holdings. It's just, it says we'll, we'll add cash instead. So we might sell some things, add cash, and look for an opportunity to buy again later at a lower price or at a, at a more attractive point where the risk and reward makes sense for our investors. So, so we're trying to not just manage the investment, we're trying to manage the amount of risk that we own. So over de-risk time. during high risk environments. So for a lack of better terms. So again, it's a risk reward trade-off, mm-hmm. right? Like the last year or so when the markets were going up, markets were expensive, but there was not a lot of other opportunity that we saw elsewhere. Right. So we continued to participate in those areas where it was working. The, the downside to it is when it turns around, the most aggressive stuff is also the most aggressive to go down. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've, we've taken an opportunity to raise some cash last week. Mm-hmm. We've even, uh, for some of our investors, we did a little bit of, we call it hedging, but we, we shorted the market a little bit. We, yeah. used, we used a position where we bought something that goes up when the market goes down. Not a lot, but just enough to dampen so that you know it's like it's a push me pull me soften the blow a little bit yeah and and what we were doing is it wasn't trying to manage for performance other than to slow down the whipsawing Mm -hmm. right so what we're doing is managing to risk and the reason it's interesting from our vantage point and why we like the uh the 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 tactical with you know emergency uh overrides is because if our investors, like if, if, if we have an investor that's retired, they're counting on predictable income stream, 
then we don't want to have their account shrink a bunch when they're taking distributions because the distributions uh, hurt more. There it is. So we're trying to manage the volatility of our mm -hmm. strategy somewhat. Now, for our longer-term, younger investors that have a ways to go, they've authorized more risk, and so we'll take that. And then th the purpose of raising cash is literally to try to find opportunities to buy stuff back cheaper. Right. Right. So that's just managing the buy low, sell high event and being opportunistic. But for for you, the listener, right? I mean, we're talking a little bit about our strategy at our office, but for you, the listener, it's figure out what you're about. Um, for a lot of folks, mutual funds are a great way to go. Uh, we're not, and I'm, we're not advising that you buy mutual funds here because on this show, we actually don't ever give financial advice. Sounds weird, right? But we don't ever do that because we advise individual clients on your specific circumstance. And we do not offer advice generically. We just offer information about how it works. If you need advice, you really should seek a pro, right? If, if, if you need yep. it, find a qualified professional to help. You can give us a call Five, at? Yep, 541-375-0898. Okay, so that's, yeah, that's as close to a sales pitch as we're tossing today. We need a button for that too. Right, <laughs> we do. But anyway, the, the, the point being that the investigate, do your homework, right? With mutual funds, the nice thing is because they have a contract that states how they're going to behave, you can make decisions as an investor whether or not that's what you'd like to own. So some mutual funds will just buy big companies domestically domiciled. Others buy only investments that are overseas. Others buy only small companies or only tech companies or only utility companies or only energy companies, right? So you can get as specific as you'd like and somehow strategies that say, we let the manager do whatever it takes to be profitable, right? Mm -hmm. So they have different types of funds for different purposes but anyway well look the music's playing so you're gonna if you need more help figuring it out give us a call at 541-375-0898 but uh, we gotta run so matt until next time uh thanks for well thanks everybody for listening this has been david littlejohn and matt dixon and you've been listening to true wealth on news radio 1240 kqen the preceding program was paid for by little john financial services the opinions and views expressed may not reflect those of brook communications its affiliates or its employees